And welcome once again to EWTN's Bookmark. Our special guest author is Mary Eberstadt. The book Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited, published by our friends at Ignatius, available naturally through our EWTN religious catalog. EWTNRC.com for all things Catholic. Welcome, Mary, back to EWTN's Bookmark. It's, it's been a while. Yes, thanks, Doug. It's great to be back. Right, and people will have remembered seeing you on with Father Mark not that long ago when you, you spoke to him on Life on the Rocks, so that's great. This is your latest book, Adam and Eve, After the Pill Revisited. Now, this isn't a reprint of an earlier book. This is a totally new book, right? Yes, this is a kind of part two of my examination of the real legacy of the sexual revolution. The first book, Adam and Eve, After the Pill, Paradoxes of the Sexual Revolution, came out 10 years ago, and it looked at the effects of the birth control pill on individuals, men, women, children. It looked at things like pornography. So I call that a microscopic examination. Mm -hmm. This second book, Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited, is a macroscopic examination. This book is about the real legacy of the sexual revolution uh, in society, in our politics, and on the church. Right. And you've got a, a forward by the late great Cardinal Pell here um, where he talks about the idea that Adam and Eve, after the Pill Revisited, looks at the consequences of the sexual revolution in three large areas, Western societies, politics, and churches. He goes on to talk about the individual animization and familial collapse brought on by the revolution has gone on to transform society and politics, wounded the churches from within, at times mortally. And he goes on to say a very important point, which you reiterate throughout the book. Some within the Catholic Church seem to run the same disastrous experiment. Are you always confounded why, why it seems like people inside our church want to repeat the mistakes the mainline Protestant churches have been making for the last hundred years? Yes, of course. And that's why I devote a third of the new book to looking mm -hmm. at the historical record that way. Because we hear considerable voices within the Catholic Church saying, let's just draw a smiley face on this, let's put rainbow flags and unicorns here and there and hope for the best. And the point is that these experiments have been run mm -hmm. before. They were run by the Anglican Communion. And the Anglican Communion in the Western world has collapsed. And so I think it's important, especially at a time when people are raising these ideas, when this mm -hmm. desire to make the church a kinder, gentler church, seems to be uh, in the air, right. it's very important to remind people of what the record right. really is. Well, you have a great image you talk about later in the book, the idea of everybody wants to pull a thread, you know, that the Anglican from the tapestry of our faith and how you can't get away with just pulling one thread. It all unravels, doesn't it? It does. And it's interesting how foundational these, quote, unpopular teachings turn out to be. So in other words, within the Christian churches, the fight out there is not about the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount, mm -hmm. etc. It's always about the same stuff. It's always about marriage and sexuality and Jesus's teachings about those things. Now, why is that so fought over? Well, I think mm -hmm. the answer is obvious because ever since the 1960s and the widespread embrace of the birth control pill, there's been a lot of pressure to join the party. Mm -hmm. And the Catholic Church has been left out in the cold on that. But no matter how popular um, anti-Catholic teaching is or how unpopular Catholic teaching mm -hmm. is, 
we need to look at the truth of the matter, and that's what I'm trying to do in this book. Right. Cardinal Pell uh, talks, uh, quotes Evelyn Waugh, and you use it in the epilogue as well, this great quote, in the present phase of European history, this since 1930, the essential issue was no longer between Catholicism on one side and Protestantism on the other side, but between Christianity and chaos. I'm assuming you think that's where we are right now. Yes, and I wanted to add that it was the honor of my life to have Cardinal Pell contribute that kind forward. He signed off on it just a few months before his unexpected demise. Right. And I also had the privilege of talking with him in person a couple of times about the themes in this book, including what you're raising, Doug, this idea that Evelyn Waugh had about chaos. And I was updating it to say that the kind of chaos that he was talking about right. Um, the 20th century chaos is very different from what we are facing. In the 20th century, it was about war and millions and millions of deaths and dislocations, etc. On the other hand, certain institutions stood firm. The family was still a thing. Mm -hmm. The churches were still a thing. In our day, I think chaos, with a capital C, is taking several different forms. One important example is intellectual chaos in our universities. Right. Particularly our sec secular universities. Right. Well, it's interesting because in in the forward he also says, relating to you, Eberstadt is particularly scathing about the elite education in the United States, where she sees quote unquote a hiding in a postmortem cuckoo's nest for decades. An allusion, obviously, to the book by Kesey and the and the film. Uh, what do you mean by that? I mean that we are facing a great paradox out there where people in charge of disseminating truth no longer believe that there is such a thing as truth. And so, for example, an atheist was recently made chief chaplain at Harvard University. Well, why not? Because if there is no truth, there is no A and not A, it can be true at the same time. And this is a kind of, this is beyond folly, this is incoherence, and that's what I was trying to draw attention to. Right, and beginning in the introduction, you talk about your 2012 book uh, titled Adam and Eve After the Pill Paradox is a Sexual Revolution, and you, you talk and explain why you decided you needed this new, this new book. Why don't you uh, elucidate that? I thought a new book was needed to look at the wider consequences of the way we've been living since the 1960s. Why are our politics so divisive and coarse? Why is our society increasingly riven? Why do we see this absolutist uh, insistence on the part of progressive forces that everything religious has to be buried, which leads to the sharp rise in religious liberty cases? And why do we see this civil war within Christianity? What is that about? Mm -hmm. I think the answers in all of these cases trace back to the effects of the sexual revolution on atomizing and uh, sometimes shattering individuals and generally upsetting the sense of identity that most people once had. Identity rooted in family and faith that cannot be constructed the same way in an era when the family is shattered right. and more and more people uh, know little about Christianity in the first place. Right, you talk a lot about fatherlessness, the impact it has on our society, uh, kind of the anger that's out there, kind of like the gangs that replace the f the family and people searching for identities to be part of a group because they're missing their family connection, right? Yes, and sometimes this takes the, the form of toxic street gangs, as you mm -hmm. just mentioned, Doug. 
And it also takes the form of identity politics. Why do we see this very emotional clinging to these groups based on erotic ideas or gender or ethnicity? Mm -hmm. These groups are operating as substitutes for what were once the robust institutions of family and faith. And the point here is that people cannot exist without attachment to something. People will attach, just as they can't really exist without believing in something. But what we're seeing is that this kind of divisiveness is arising out of a place where people have been launched into the atmosphere as uh, autonomous units bereft of the kind of so strong social ties that the generations before us knew. Uh, you kind of outlined in the beginning of the book, kind of give an overview of each of the chapters. And chapter one bridges the two books and summarizes the paradoxes, and in, in, in you outline it in five ways. One of the things you point out, I think, I think is right on the money. It's always confusing, the, the fact that the forecasts that so many of the progressives made, certainly in the 60s and 70s, from somebody who grew up during that period of time, and I remember, have turned out to be totally wrong. Uh, instead of lowering rates of abortion, out of wedlock births, divorce, and fatherlessness, as was promised, it accelerated all of the above. But yet they seem to deny those scientific facts. Yes, my point there is that in the very beginning, maybe one could take a rosy view of this. Maybe mm -hmm. one could think, for example, that contraception would strengthen marriage. That was an argument that was made. Contraception would reduce abortion. That was an argument made by Margaret Sanger, among others. But we have no such excuses because with the benefit of 60 years of empirical evidence, a significant amount of which is buried in the footnotes in these books, uh, we can't pretend anymore that the sexual revolution was going to be a net boon for humanity. It's been a disaster for family formation, for marriage, and its emotional toll has yet to be measured. Mm -hmm. So we are in possession of the evidence. We can't look away from it. Right. In chapters two through four, you reflect on the book's macro uh, uh, view of questions like, what is the revolution doing to society? And that's where you talk about the idea of the new intolerance, which later became known as cancel culture. And you refer to this or, or quote it as saying, a slow motion marginalizing and penalizing of believers on the very doorsteps of the churches in societies that are historical strongholds of political and religious liberty. You go on to say, today's intolerance increases human misery via its increasing interference with good works. How so? Well, the point there is that progressivism is not a neutral force in the public square. Mm -hmm. It is trying to take down Christian charities. We've seen attacks on adoption agencies, on Catholic hospitals, on agencies that serve the poor and the destitute. We've seen attacks on emergency pregnancy centers that give diapers and sonograms and high chairs and things like that to women who need them. Mm -hmm. So there is this callousness mm -hmm. about the attack on Christianity that I don't think is well understood, which is why I was trying to elaborate right. on it. Right. In Chapter 3, From Revolution to Dogma, The Zealous Faith of Secularism, you talk about the new intolerance. Uh, but that it's moved beyond that to a full-blown quasi-religious substitute faith for Christianity. Uh, and you go on to say, one of secularism has emerged a new creedal system rooted in rejection of Christian moral code. Uh, and you talk about its Gnostic foundations. What do you mean? I mean that we are dealing with a, a contender to Christianity here. 
The sexual revolution has given rise to a Gnostic faith, and its central tenet is that uh, sexual pleasure at all costs is to be protected. And its central sacrament, I believe, is abortion. I believe it is through the practice of abortion that many people enter into this faith in the first place. Mm -hmm. So we have to understand that it's, it's not just that people don't like the old Christian rule book. They are increasingly absolutist about uh, attacking it because it stands in the way of their religious conviction. Right. Their new group. Chapter 4, Men Are at War with God, looks at the Achilles heel of this competitor Christianity and its flawed anthropology. You talk about how men have forgotten God. Today's obsession with transgenderism, and of course we're dealing with that every day it seems like, is a piece with other attempts at derailing the created order, such as abortion, euthanasia, rage against creation also underlies this uh, in nearly all forms of this kind of sexual expression. Why do you think that's, the, are we just on a slippery slope and this, these are just natural progressions? I think at the root, the problem here is as old as creation. It mm -hmm. is the desire of human beings to say, I'm in charge, not you. Mm -hmm. And given our technology, we are able to say this from the very beginning of life uh, via contraception and abortion to the end. Uh, with euthanasia, with a lot in between, including now transgenderism. But the question that is not asked is, first of all, are we better off being in charge of all this stuff? The point of my book is that the evidence doesn't suggest this. Uh, and second, what is the truth here? Mm -hmm. right. in, chap in chapter five, the two, divide, uh, two nations revisited, you quote uh, a speech by uh, James Q. Wilson. Who was he and why did you quote his speech? He was a major social scientist of the 20th century, very famous in his day and should be famous now. He made the argument in the late 1990s that the family had replaced money and race as the best predictor of outcomes for kids. Now, there's a lot of data to back that up that we are not getting into here, but that is an amazing point if you think about it. That One's race was not as predictive of good or bad outcomes as whether one came from an intact family. One's social position at birth, you could be born at the bottom of the ladder mm -hmm. and still do well if you came from an intact family. Wilson was the one who assembled that evidence most compellingly, and it still stands today, and it's an important part of this discussion, or should be. Right. Now, Chapter 6, How the Family Gap Undercuts Western Freedom, shows how family combustion has catapulted out of sociological textbooks and onto mainstream. That seems to be what we've seen in a lot of things. Some of these kind of theoretical things that were percolating on universities suddenly are, are, are proffered out as mainstream facts. Yes, and part of the point of those chapters, there are a couple of chapters about what we are seeing in the streets and why we are seeing it. So to fast forward to the next one, which is about uh, the riots and protests in the summer of 2020, which I'm sure people remember. There were 10,000 incidents of what's called unrest. 500 of them turned violent. This happened all across the United States. What I do in that chapter, The Fury of the Fatherless, mm -hmm. is connect this to, again, the atomization of people. Who has the wherewithal to be out in the streets night after night? 
not people who are living in families, not people who have been taught not to throw rocks. So again, we are seeing increasingly in society itself, and not just in relations between individuals, the effects of what we've done to ourselves by subtracting people out of our lives in the way that's happened since the 1960s. Right, and I know in, in later in the book even you, you talk about it, or in that chapter, the idea that moves from father kind of disappears, parent becomes the focus. You see about child and mother, but the father seems to, to not play a part in this equation, right? Yes, this is an important note about identity politics. I want to talk quickly about two documents that are fundamental here. One is the founding document of identity politics, which was written by uh, radical African-American feminists in, the, in 1977. That was the first document to use the phrase identity politics, mm -hmm. and it does not talk about fathers. It does not talk about brothers. It mm -hmm. talks about giving up on the men in these women's lives and saying, because we can no longer trust those around us, particularly men, we must band together for a common political cause. This is echoed decades later in Black Lives Matter's founding manifesto, where again, mm -hmm. we see the disappearance of fathers, brothers, masculine language altogether, combined with now an attack on the quote, heteronormative family. So. Once again, we see that identity politics is operating as a kind of substitute family for people coming out of a place where theirs are, are shaken. Um, and that's something we need to understand about our politics because it goes into it. Right. And, and, and what's interesting, too, in that section, I know you talk about Paul Vitz and some of his writings and studies, which I remember uh, finding very interesting years ago, about how many of the people involved, first he was, whether it was the feminist movement or now these kinds of identity movements, where the father was not present in the home of that person growing up. Yes, and I give many examples from left, right, and center of these mm -hmm. identitarian groups. We see this with the neo-Nazis, we see it with the white nationalists, we see it with BLM, we see it with the critical race theory people. Um, and I went through the biographies of many of them, as you know, in that chapter, mm -hmm. to point out that most of them were coming from what Paul Vitz would have called a ruptured paternal, paternal situation. And I think Vitz's book is also very important here because he connected the dots between that ruptured paternity, as he put it, and atheism. He showed how many of the leading atheists across the century were also coming right. from a place without fathers. Right. In, in the chapter eight, uh, the doomed experiment of Christianity light, um, and we've seen the effects of it, death by demographic, softened dogma became the new Pied Piper making children vanish from the pews. Everybody keeps talking about it. I don't know why they can't figure it out. But you go on to say that uh, doctrinal subversion, you go on to say first limited exceptions are made to a rule. Next, those exceptions are no longer limited and become the unremarkable norm. Finally, the new norm is in itself sanctified as theologically acceptable. Not only acceptable, sometimes considered as good, if not better, right? Yes. And the point about the children vanishing from the pews is not just that this is bad for the churches because it makes their financial base smaller. Right, right. I'm trying to make a wider <laughs> point here, which is what do children do? Children humanize adults. Children teach adults how to be self-sacrificing, how to put others' needs ahead of yours. And I think this, again, Doug, is part of what we're seeing in the coarsening of our society, is more unintended fallout 
from people right. just plain not having kids and living in families. Right. And you say the persisting notion that mercy and moral norms are somehow at odds is confuted by the evidence. You go on to say the normalization of mores that are making people miserable is not mercy because there seems to be this kind of we're putting these things in conflict with one another. Yes, this again is something that Cardinal Pell and I talked about in person that mercy includes mercy for the people who are the victims of the sexual revolution. And secularism ignores their suffering. Secularism has nothing to say to them. Secularism can't take account of the children of broken homes, say, mm -hmm. because then secularism would have to betray its founding premises. Now, you also talk about, at, at the end of the book, you talk about the meaning of the Dobbs decision in the appendix. Why did you think it was important for us to understand the meaning of that decision? I think Dobbs is critical because it amounts to the first major institutional rollback of the sexual revolution in Western society. That's it in a nutshell. And not only was Dobbs important for the United States, but think about all the countries around the world who also have Christian heritages that decided to jettison those heritages for the sake of making abortion legal, who were looking to Roe versus Wade the law is a teacher, as is always said. And Roe v. Wade is an example of bad teaching. And mm -hmm. now, as of Dobbs, those other countries that look to us for leadership are seeing a different kind of result. So again, in a word, rollback. Rollback that nobody thought could happen of the sexual revolution. And, and my sense is you wanted to show that it was possible, that it's not settled science, it's not a settled, this is where we have to be that there is a way to fight back against it? For 60 years, we've been told that this is all inevitable, that you right. can't put the genie back in the bottle, et cetera. Of all social movements across history, the sexual revolution is said to be the one that's off limits for reconsideration. Dobbs is an example of exactly that, major reconsideration. And as I also note in the book, there's rethinking going on outside religious circles. This is very different, mm -hmm. Dobbs. Ten years ago, when the first book was published, there was none of this revisionism coming from secular orbits. But we have seen uh, best-selling books in France, in Germany, and in the United States mm. by authors who are not speaking for the Catholic Church, looking again at what's happened since the 1960s and saying, hey, what happened to romance? Have we done ourselves something wrong? What happened to families and kids? So I think there will be a lot more of that, and mm. rightly so. Right, you, you actually hit on it in the chapter I, I actually spent a lot of time looking at was having to do with Christian light because it seems to be, you know, obviously fits our, our perspective here at EW10 and some of our concerns. And you talk about Lambert and uh, contraception. It was interesting that once the church accepted artificial contraception, they signaled that sexual activity was for human delight and blessings, even if it was divorced from any idea of procreation. And you showed how that's connected then to the rise of homosexuality in the sense of the acceptance there and transgenderism, right? Yes, I think that's a logical chain that works. But to go back to the fundamental point mm -hmm. here, it does seem as if interfering with creation, saying that we can call the, our shots on whether to participate in it or not, is what has led to the sharp decline in Christianity across the West. So it's not uh, just that creation was something God gave us to make us happy. It seems as though uh, through that act, we have been participating in communication with 
the greater cosmos with divinity in a way that we didn't understand until we stopped. Right. Let me ask you one question. It kind of comes out of a general concept of the book, but something always I find interesting is this idea of this this incredible autonomy that I'm demanding, that you know I'm I'm the god of my life, but yet there's this incredible kind of communitarian uh, that everyone has to accept these particular new dogmas. How do those two things, which seem like they're contradictory, work together, especially in the, nun, the, the nuns we're dealing with? Well, I don't think they do work together. And the fastest way to see that is to think about the animal kingdom of mm. all things. If we ran the experiments on elephants that we are running on ourselves, if we said, OK, go be your autonomous elephant self, we'll separate you from your herd, we'll put you in a place you've never been, We'll let you create your own life. Well, we actually know from experiments on animals that catastrophe results. That was the meaning of the rhesus monkey experiment. Separated from their own kind, social creatures don't do well. They fall into dysfunction and depression. And doesn't that sound a lot like what we're seeing in our society? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's that's exactly you're exactly right, and that's where we're, we're seeing the the amount of suicide and depression and all of these things as people's socialization is is happening through social media. It's apparently social media is not very social. I think social media is a major factor here. I talk about the sexual revolution only because I think it is the most important unattended factor in our current disintegration. Right. Well, very good. Thank you so much for spending time with us, Mary Aberstadt, author of Adam and Eve After the Pill, published by Ignatius, and that's revisited and naturally and highly recommended, available through the EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com for all things Catholic, a wonderful book. Check it out. Thank you, Mary, for joining us here on EWTN's Bookmark. We'll see you all next time.